Hey everybody, Sam Mellinger here, sports columnist with the Kansas City Star, and I'm grateful for you listening to the 61st episode of the Mellinger Minutes for Your Ears podcast. The goal this week, the goal every week, is to be worth your time. This week we're going to do that with questions on Kansas City's World Cup chances following soccer, whether it's better to have rooted for the Royals or the Rays over the last 10 years in the most influential small town in Kansas City sports history. The bonus segment is really cool, uh, super timely. It's with college athlete rights advocate Ramogi Huma, who led us inside the fight a bit. He talks about why the uh, the name, image, and likeness rules passed this week are more like the beginning than the end. But right now, I want to talk to you about Brad Keller. And in turn, we're going to talk about Cal Eldred. Um, Keller is a mess right now. And he is in good company there because the Royals are a mess right now. So I want to be clear here that we're, we're not blaming the Royal struggles on Keller or Eldred or any other single person or issue. Uh, the Royals would be in a better place if they just had one problem to fix, right? But we're focusing on Keller here at the top because I think the struggles are significant and he's a good representation of some of what's going on more broadly too. There are times over these 17 starts that I've been convinced that Keller was hiding an injury. Um, there's been times I was convinced his just it was a mechanical thing. There's been times I've wondered, is he tipping pitches? Um, you know, all kinds of other potential problems because this is really wild. Like numbers don't always translate with podcasts, so I'll try to keep these simple and clear. But listen to this. This is this is this is telling. From 2018 to 2020, Keller's first three years in the big leagues after being a Rule Five pick, he had an adjusted ERA 31% better than the league average. 31% better than the league average. He gave up a little less than 1.3 base runners per nine innings. Now. In 2021, his adjusted ERA is 32% below league average. From 31% better than league average, now it's 32% below league average. He's given up almost 1.9 base runners per nine innings. That is no way to go through life. After the start on Tuesday night, his ERA was at 6.67. He was leading the league in hits, earned runs, and walks. Look, this is easy to forget now, but before this season, Keller was like, kind of a trendy pick is like a breakout guy and and for obvious reasons like he was terrific in the shortened 2020 season uh 2.47 era a whip of just barely over one he went at least five innings and in all but one start and this is wild but he gave up zero zero runs in five of his nine starts including a shutout against the pirates in september right now Keller's given up at least four runs in each of his last five starts and I, i'm trying to find the underlying cause like his fastball velocity is actually up a bit uh, from last year, from any other year in his career. So the injury thing doesn't make much sense. Um, if you look at his uh, baseball savant page, the movement on his four-seamer, the sinker, the slider, the change. I mean, these are human beings, right? So nothing's exactly the same. But all of it is pretty dang close this season to the past when he's been really successful. Um, spin rate, that's a big thing these days, right? But his numbers there are essentially the same now as they were last year. So... I don't know, man. Like the the biggest problem that sticks out when you look at the stats and charts and stuff is the same thing that sticks out, you know, the most when you watch the games, which is just simple command. Like he's he's just it's too much of the plate, too much of the time, right? And and he's up in the zone, especially with the change up in the four seam and those things can get crushed. He's just up in the zone too much to get big leaguers out. Um, but then again, like his strikeouts are up. Right? Like he's striking out 7.4 per nine innings. That would be the highest of his career. That's about 12% jump over, the, over his previous career high. So I don't know. The, the Royals have referenced this at times that he may be trying for too many strikeouts instead of pitching to his own strengths, which, you know, traditionally have been causing, you know, soft contact, soft ground balls. And that makes sense, right? Like logically, that makes sense, except that Keller had 
he had an eight-start stretch this season where he was pretty good, uh, 3.71 ERA from April 26th to June 4th. And that was even with opponents going for a batting average on balls in play of 331, which would typically indicate a lot of bad luck for the pitcher. But one way he overcame that was with 42 strikeouts in 43 and two-thirds innings. So his three highest strikeout totals of the season came in that stretch. So, like, philosophically, I actually I agree with what the Royals are saying on this, that Keller is at his best when he's getting ground balls, specifically soft ground balls, and not necessarily pitching for strikeouts. But at least so far this season, the results don't back that up. So I don't it's, – it's just a, – it's a wild thing, right? Like – because the other thing the Royals generally talk about is he just needs confidence, right? Like he needs to believe it first and then he'll see it second. And I'm sure that's true on some level, but it's just a little impractical. You know what I mean? Like confidence follows results, right? Not the other way around. And expecting a guy to just sort of manufacture confidence when he's having the worst stretch of his career. I mean, I just go back to that same word, right? It's just impractical. I wish I had a solution here. I wish I could pretend to be, you know, like the the know-it-all local sports columnist and tell you, you know, he's overthrowing or overstriding or he needs to use a sinker more or whatever. But it's there's there's a this is a delicate thing, you know. This one's confusing, like I because I believe in Keller, I find him to be like smart and focused uh, with the right priorities. And you know, even now we have three seasons of seeing him as a good to very good pitcher. And only half a season of seeing him struggle like this. So we shouldn't just like write him off and think he's done or whatever, you know. Um, so I don't know if it's like he's in his arbitration years now. He's starting to make real money. You know, do you, do you try to overpitch with that? Um, there, there's just there's a lot going on here, you know. And so I don't know if there's one thing I can sit here and point to, like is sort of a amateur like armchair pitching coach or whatever. It's just like it's he just needs to live down in the zone. You know, and it just seems like he's elevating a little too much. When he's down, that's when those grounders come. And and that's when he can pitch with efficiency and consistency. Uh, but for whatever reason, either mechanics or maybe it's part of a plan where he's trying to get more strikeouts. He's just he's not doing that often enough. Um, you know, and the biggest difference there is with that four seamer. And because that, that has been a pitch that he's been able to work off of. And he can control at bats with that thing. And now it's a pitch that's just absolutely getting crushed. Um, you know, I mean... Opponents were batting like below 200 on that, and now they're well over 300 with power on that four-seamer. So I don't know. So whatever the reason, like we're not in this space where we can say it's just like, you know, a a few bad starts, right? Um, Or that the fix is simple because if the fix was simple, it would have been done by now, right? Um, So I don't know. Here is the part where we get back to Eldred. And I know a lot of you think he should be fired. Um, I think a lot of you know that I believe that we baseball fans generally put way too much importance into coaches and coaching changes. It's it's the players that do it or the players that don't, you know. But it's also true that this is Eldred's fourth year as the Royals pitching coach. And, you know, before this season, it would have been fair to say the team had okay results, um, you know, with Keller as sort of like the star pupil, you know, because – Getting that kind of production out of a Rule 5 guy is really something special. But that seems like a long time ago now, right? So it means like Keller's problems, um, you know, his struggles here, they're not just a problem for the Royals, um, but that they're also a problem for Eldred. Okay, guys, uh, before we move on to the rest of the show, uh, cut my early spiel because this one is longer. And this is where I make my ask. Three asks. Um, and as always, we're still friends if you only do two or one or even zero, but it doesn't hurt, hurt for me to try. Um, the first, please support us. Give the Sports Pass a try. Dollar a month for the first three months. 
or $30 for a year. Just reach out to me on Twitter, Facebook, email, whatever, and, and I'll send them along. Uh, the second, please rate and review us. Savannah and I appreciate all the love you've given us already. Thank you, thank you, thank you. But I'm just saying, if you haven't already done it, if you haven't already given us a rating or review, please do it. It really helps us get the word out. Uh, five stars only, please help. Uh, the third thing, if you want to participate in next week's show, please call 816-234-4365. Leave your first name, where you're calling from, and almost literally any question. Put the number in your phone, call anytime, 816-234-4365, or as the great reader Michael points out, 816-BEG-IDLE. All right, guys, I know I'm asking a lot, but that's how it's going to be. Subscribe to the Sports Pass. Give us a five-star rating and review and call in with questions, um, please. All right, quick break, and then we're back with the questions. Hey, Sam, this is Scott from Shawnee. My question for you is this. With the Gold Cup, the U.S. men's national team playing three games in Kansas City, is this the end-all, be-all, you know, audition for Kansas City to be a World Cup hosting site for the 2026 World Cup? Uh, and on top of that, if they have a good showing and say they get a World Cup qualifier for this cycle and another great showing, could Arrowhead be hosting a U.S. men's national team World Cup game in 2026 if all goes well? Um, thanks for your, uh, for taking the question. I enjoy the podcast. It's a great question and, uh, something we'll talk and write a lot more about the next few weeks. But the short answer is it's not that simple, you know? Um, and it's not that simple because nothing about the World Cup or hosting or the politics involved, just nothing about any of that is simple. Uh, there is an endless amount of paperwork and conversations and boxes to check. Just so much data required, you know, these presentations, hotel rooms, the size and diversity of populations and workforces, public transportation, soccer culture, infrastructure. I mean, just like so many different things involved here. I just it would be oversimplifying or, you know, even naive to say, you know, yeah, you know, Children's Mercy is rocking for the Gold Cup. Then we'll get World Cup games or, you know, yeah, if the Gold Cup is a dud then we're dead in the water for the World Cup. So I, I guess I could get behind the idea that if the atmosphere is just completely dead, um, you know, I could see that maybe hurting our chances, you know? Um, I, I could get behind, you know, more of that than the idea that like nailing this will be some sort of guarantee, you know what I mean? But either way, I think this is something that a lot of us will think and talk a lot about, but a week or even a day after the end of the Gold Cup games in Kansas City, there's still gonna be a ton of work to do and a ton of questions that will need answers for us to have actual World Cup games here. Uh, I know that's not a satisfying answer, it's probably not the one you're looking for, but um, that's what I think. Um, all right, let's do one more soccer question. Hi Sam, Keith calling from Oregon. Uh, just curious, looking for something maybe to talk about other than the Royals during the summertime, but. Maybe Sporting Kansas City has been a gateway for me. I really didn't grow up as a soccer fan, but I found they've kind of made me curious about the European leagues, and particularly the Premier League. And I noticed on Twitter you had talked about you're a fan of Arsenal. And I've been looking for a team to, to try to follow, and it's been difficult without having some of the regional or local ties or, or other reasons to have a, a rooting interest. So 
So I was just curious, what was the impetus for you to become an Arsenal fan and uh, maybe some suggestions for, for those of us looking to, to follow a team in, in the European League of, of who would be good to follow? Thanks. So I chose Arsenal for a few reasons. Um, I didn't want to, you know, first, I didn't want to root for a team, you know, like owned by a Russian oligarch or royal family or whatever. Uh, I liked Arsenal's history, uh, the way they aim to play, you know, that idea of like victory through harmony. Uh, I also had some friends who supported Arsenal, which made it easier. Uh, I liked the idea of beer specials at Johnny's during the games, uh, even if I haven't taken advantage of that as, as much as I would have liked. But um, honestly, though, like, and I hate to admit this, uh, I hate to admit this, but if I was choosing a team now, I'm not sure I wouldn't take Chelsea, you know, <laughs> oligarch or not, and uh, just because of Christian Pulisic. But, um, you know, those are personal choices, and I also think it wouldn't be a bad idea to just, like, take your time, you know, just watch a season or so of games without predetermining a team and just see who speaks to you. You know, maybe you'll catch West Ham on a good day and choose them. You know, maybe you'll fall for Man City and all that money and talent, whatever. But, you know, you'll, you'll have an idea of what you're getting into, you know, um, as you get into it. I really like the Premier League. Uh, it's so freaking good. You know, the, the games are fast and physical. The skill can be like breathtaking. Um, stadiums are rocking, you know, at least in normal times. And it, it's one of those things you can just like feel the passion through the screen. You know what I mean? Like it, it's just, it's about as good as sports get. And now I can't say I watch as much of it, you know, as the NFL or Major League Baseball or, you know, NBA, college basketball, football, MLS, whatever. Uh, but I do enjoy having at least like sort of a working knowledge about some of the best players in the world and about how that league works. And I thought this was going to be like awkward, but... I also really dig that they're just on like every Saturday and Sunday morning. You know what I mean? It's like how cartoons used to be when I was a kid. Uh, I like that part of it too. So, um, all right, guys, uh, here's a baseball question. And I thought this one was really interesting. Hey, Sam, this is Tucker from Joplin, Missouri. And I know that arguments like this or questions like this get thrown around a lot and they're, they're probably, they're not realistic, but Looking back on the last 10 or 12 years, like I think it's a fair question to say, would you really be a Royals fan who you know, reached two World Series and won one of them, got to hang a banner, or a Tampa Bay Rays fan who have not won a World Series, they've been to one, they've actually been to two if you go all the way back to 2008, but I mean, it's inarguable that the Rays are a much better ran franchise than the Royals. And the thing is, this is what Dayton and his crew were supposed to build here. Winning a World Series was great, but they were supposed to build a consistent winner like the Rays, the Cardinals, Oakland, a team that's in contention every year. And I, I think it gnaws at them. It's got to that they haven't. Like since 2004, they went the opposite direction. But anyway, I don't even know if I have a question, just kind of making an observation about that, about you know comparing like Oakland and Tampa. Uh, not what Tampa's never won a World Series. Oakland's hasn't won one since '89. Uh, the Royals have won one, but they they weren't supposed to have these peaks and valleys, and that's where they're at now. And I'm just just curious to get your thoughts on this. Thanks, Spike. God, I love this question. Um, and part of the reason I love this question is that I think a lot of Royals fans would say they'd rather be the Rays, you know, because the Rays are always good and seem to be the one team in baseball immune to the sort of the nasty cycles of the sport and economics. And they were just in the World Series and all that. And I think a lot of Rays fans would say the Royals because the Royals did what the Rays haven't been able to do so far. So it's, it's just it's such a great question. Um, and, and there's good and bad parts of both. Right. Like 
I've said a lot that, um, you know, I could live to be 200 years old, you know, and, and do this job until the day I die. And I'm not sure that I would ever have more fun professionally than I did writing about those 2014 and 2015 Royals teams. Like those are memories that people in, in Tampa and St. Pete, and I'm not making any jokes here about the Roy Rays attendance or anything like that, but th these are memories that, you know, Rays fans just don't have, you know what I mean? And I also have young kids and young kids who I want to experience the best parts of baseball. And we're doing that, but I also know it's a lot easier when the local team is winning, you know? So um, I don't know, man. Like, I, I think it's better to have the team that won a World Series just objectively sort of across the board. But, you know, if you take the other side, I'm not going to argue that point, like, with a lot of passion. You know what I mean? But you, you bring out something else that's interesting here, which is, like, the consistency. And, you know, yes, the Royals and all teams do this, right? Like, nobody talks about, like, you know, hey, the plan is to be really terrible for a while and then win a World Series and then be bad again. Um, but the, the Royals and Dayton have talked a lot about wanting to be consistent. And what I would tell you is that the actions of the organization have not always aligned with that. And I'm thinking specifically about the offseason after the 2016 season when the Royals had Lorenzo Cain and Eric Hosmer and, you know, even Salvador Perez and others. And, and they had a heck of a decision to make. And this is in hindsight. I, I wrote about this at the time a lot. Um, but they basically had two choices then. Um, and either way would have been fine. You, you you swallow hard and you trade those guys for prospects and you kickstart the next rebuild with an infusion of talent, you know, that would also presumably have a run of high draft picks or they could. And again, this would be a hard swallow thing again, but more for David Glass and fans, but they could have added some, you know, free agents and spent to make the most of the last year with those guys all being together. The Royals kind of tried to create a third option, which was to try to do both. Um, and that was a call by David Glass, and I think it's the single biggest mistake he made after 2006 when he sort of reset and hired Dayton Moore and invested in infrastructure and all that. Uh, the result of that decision, I would argue, we are still seeing that now. And I'm not blaming the Royals like being in last place right now on a decision five years ago. That's not what this is. But I'm telling you that the Royals could have either done all they could to make the most of 2017 or they could have done all they could to make the most of the longer term future. You know what I mean? And, and they tried to sort of cheat the system and do both. And in the process, they did neither. So, okay, that's, I'm going to end that little bit of a rant, but I'm a rant, but I'm bringing this all up because uh, when John Sherman has talked publicly, he's talked a lot, a lot, a lot about staying consistent, about doing everything possible to, you know, make sure the team is competitive every year, because if you're competitive every year, then you have a chance to rise up a little bit and make a run at the trophy, you know? And, and that's a different thing than how the organization operated in the years before and after the parade. And this is just a small example, and we can pick apart the trade compensation, all that, I get it. But if the goal is consistency and not necessarily like going all in for a championship, I don't know, do you trade for Ben Zobrist and Johnny Cueto in 2015? Maybe not. So I don't know, like, I, I think we've seen the Royals become like more transactional in recent years. And, you know, the Andrew Benintendi trade is probably the best recent example. But I think you're seeing the, the sort of general parameters of an organization that is shifting the way it will build. And that's all easier said than done, of course. Um, you know, all teams would love to be as sort of like transactionally successful as the Rays have been. But, you know, you could also say that all small market teams would love to have had the success the Royals had in 2014 and 2015. So it's a, <laughs> it is a personal thing. But, you know, for me, you take the trophy. But again, if, if, if you want the other way, I'm not going to argue against you. Sam, this is Joe. I'm a native Kansas Cityan, transplant, now living in New York. I live in a small town called Marlboro. And 
known for uh, being the home of the famous Kansas City Royal, D. Brown, as well as the wife of Wade Davis. He still comes back here in the offseason and trains sometimes, I hear. Uh, it brings me question, what is the most important small town population under 10,000 people in the history of Kansas City sports? Thanks, Sam. Uh, Joe, I am completely cheating here, but I'm going to say Garden City, Missouri, which, according to a Google search just before I recorded this, has a population of 354. Ewing Kaufman grew up on a farm outside of Garden City, Missouri. And I think if you have a town of 354 people, probably means all of them live outside the town. You know what I mean? But anyway, with the exception of Lamar Hunt, I, I think it is objectively true that nobody has had a bigger influence on Kansas City sports than Ewing Kaufman. And this is probably even more important. I think if you broaden the conversation beyond sports, I think it could be accurately said that Kaufman is the most influential man in Kansas City history. Not Kansas City sports history, but Kansas City history. Because has any place in Kansas City hosted more people than what is now Kauffman Stadium? You know, um, it, it's often talked about like how many millionaires he created in Kansas City, the philanthropic stuff that he did that was so important to you know him and the lives and lives on with his foundation with kids you know through the scholarship program uh it, it's really remarkable and straight up i mean like you guys tell me if i'm wrong because i tend to think about sports a little bit more than is probably healthy but overall like sports and otherwise has anybody had a bigger impact on kansas city than you and kaufman like really like anybody i don't think so anyway okay one more break and then we are back with the bonus section with uh, Ramogi Huma, an advocate for college athletes' rights and the executive director of the National College Players Association. Okay, uh, let's finish strong. And I wanted to share here with you a conversation with Ramogi Huma, uh, whose title is Executive Director of the National College Players Association. In reality, he's something like the nation's leading advocate for college athlete rights. Uh, he was a linebacker at UCLA. He's got a bachelor's degree in sociology, a master's in public health. He, he lives this stuff in a deep way. And you might remember six or seven years ago, uh, when he helped Northwestern football team to the brink of forming a union. They missed out there, uh, but they filed lawsuits that laid the foundation for some of what we're seeing now today with the name, image, and likeness rights being approved uh, on an interim basis, I guess, with the promise of a fight for more. So anyway, here's the first thing I asked him, which is basically uh, that a lot of people are looking at NIL as like a landmark, uh, but that I'm imagining that he's seeing this as, as just part of progress, more the beginning than the end. So, okay, here's, here's Ramoki. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is, you know, what some people are characterizing as, you know, chaos and other things for us. We're celebrating, you know, for us, uh, the status quo was injustice and those same people were quiet and they did nothing. Mm -hmm. um, we're in a transitionary period. So um, there will be 
a lack of uniformity uh, until uh, Congress acts. And that's a whole nother process, of course. But I mean, there's there's uh, you know, there's no question this is a, a great development for college athletes rights. Um, and you know, I think maximum freedoms are, you know, are really close, are really close, because if you look at some of the states that pass laws, essentially, if you know, if the board, if the board, NCAA board uh, adopts some of these proposals in, in many ways, um, athletes in states without laws for the time being will have more freedoms than athletes yeah. in states that do have laws. And again, that's a transitionary period. I expect that to change as well. I expected another of um clean up a number of cleanup bills uh next legislative cycle in the states um if Congress hasn't acted already by that time. So this is just a, a temporary solution that does not come close to solving even this relatively smart part, <laughs> small part, I should say, uh, of the NCAA's challenges. The NIL stuff is temporary and, and meaning this is sort of like a placeholder, you know, until the NCAA, Congress or individual states come up with more permanent solutions. And there's all sorts of complications here, right? Like Ramogi's side has agreed the NIL should not be used uh, to induce commitments or transfers. Uh, which is sort of like a mechanical concession that I just can't imagine either side believes is realistically enforceable. How does that happen? Like, it's going to get out how much, you know, guys are getting at certain schools. Of course, it's going to be part of how guys choose where they want to play, you know, same as playing time or coaching style or anything else. But anyway, after that, you're talking about like who can pay, when they can pay, for what they can pay and and whether those payments can be tied to performance, you know, um, you know, sort of the way that that a lot of professional athletes have incentive clauses in their contracts, and you know, just all sorts of potential complications with this stuff. But um, look here, I think uh, like Ramogi here, he makes it very clear that NIL is is just the beginning. Now I'll have said that on the con- on, con- on the congressional level. When you're talking about compensation, NIL is not full economic justice by any means. It's right. scratching the surface. That's like saying, hey, um, you're, you're, I know you're working, you know, in this job and you're making everyone else a lot of money, but if you actually want to get paid, you got to go get a second job because you're not getting paid here. Yeah. And that's, yeah. that's wrong. That's, that's not American. Um, so we have a bill in the state of California called AB 609. It's called the College Athlete, uh, Race and Gender Equity Act. And what it would do is three things. One, it would ensure that every college athlete uh, basically in Division One, but every college athlete receives their fair, fair market value. Um, it would uh, in, enforce Title IX for the first time on the state level, and it would preserve all sports. And the reason why it does all three is because all three, all of those three things should be a priority above and beyond coaches making millions of dollars and a new luxury box in the stadium, and they're practical. And people ask those questions every time. Well, what about Title IX, and what about the other the, the sports that make less money? And it can be done. All that can be done. So he makes it sound simple, right? And it's just, it's not. <laughs> it is not even close to simple. And, you know, even those of us who believe the NCAA's rules are just embarrassingly outdated can admit that. Um, we can acknowledge that any potential changes are going to create new problems with unintended consequences. And the messiness of this whole thing is just going to keep going. So. Anyway, I, I thought this was really interesting. I, I wrote some about this in the column the other day, which obviously I hope you read, but 
a lawyer friend of mine, like sort of half jokingly presented one of the greatest ironies imaginable, which is that the NCAA, after fighting this progress for so long and lobbying directly against the efforts of the Northwestern football team to unionize, they might actually be better off if college athletes formed a union. Uh, because the, the short version is that with a union, there could be a collective bargaining agreement, which would dictate the business and come up with terms that each side would agree on. But without a union, I want to be clear here, it's a long shot at best. But without a union, the reality is that we're basically just going to see a series of like new rules and legislation done with like guesswork about, you know, what might hold up in court. And, you know, that is a really bad way to do it for everybody except the lawyers in need of work, you know. So anyway, here's Ramogi uh, when I asked him about the idea of a union actually being good for the NCAA. I thought this was really interesting. Here he is. Well, I can say now. So, um Yes. I mean, I don't know that the, I doubt the NCAA is going to go that route, but the, the reality is, is if you, if you want an antitrust, if you want to avoid antitrust uh, scrutiny, you need a collective bargaining agreement. And that's, so what happened was when we launched the Northwestern effort, if you look, if you look back in the, in the news reports, we um, coordinated the Jenkins lawsuit, which became, got combined with the Austin lawsuit, challenging compensation limits. It was to get to the point of what you just mentioned. This was not this. We strategically did not mention it um, probably until now. You might be breaking it here um, because there was a previous ruling. I believe it was with the Supreme Court when the NFLPA decertified during a um, labor dispute. Yeah, um, I think it was like the uh, I think it was the Supreme Court had said, well, you know, this is more labor tactic, go back and negotiate. So we didn't want to be accused of, we didn't want that, you know, a court saying, well, this is just a union tactic. So, you know, if you're going to unionize, unionize and do it that way. So we just kind of kept quiet, but we, we arranged an antitrust lawsuit, Jenkins versus NCA. Um, the Jenkins, that's the piece that made it to the Supreme Court. The Austin case got settled years ago um, on the damages for, I think it was $208 million. So the part that made it, um, was uh, Jeff Kessler. Um, you know, I, I had recruited Martin Jenkins, recruited Jeff Kessler to launch this lawsuit specifically for that reason, right, when we were organizing Northwestern. Um, but the reality of union organizing in the college uh, space is much different than the NFL and, you know, and, and, the, and the other pro leagues because you have uh, most of the schools are in are, are public schools that are governed by state laws in division one and um, a much lesser number is governed by the national labor, labor relations act. And even in Obama and NRB um, didn't, didn't uh, give college athletes a fair shake, you know? So between that and you know, we saw states, Ohio and Michigan actually pass laws. After we won the initial um, Northwestern ruling, we saw them pass laws to, ban athletes from being considered employees and unionizing, mm -hmm. you know, so like there are a number of different obstacles. And so in addition to that, as you can see, there are a lot of zealots in NCAA sports that I don't see the NCAA voluntarily, you know, asking for a union. Um, we could, we could see, but I don't think that's going to happen, but it doesn't mean progress can't be made. Um, but yeah, those things intersect. That was, that was the reason why, 
rearranged the, the Jenkins case. Okay, uh, one more clip here from Ramogi, and, and this is when I asked him if he sees any sort of endgame here, you know, because it sure seems like, from my point of view, that this will never be completely solved. You know what I mean? Like, these ideas are going to go on, like, sort of forever. And, you know, with the ball being moved back and forth a bit, but always moving. Um, so, anyway, I asked the question. Here's Ramogi on that. I, I see the light at the end of the tunnel. You know, everything we said SB 206 was going to do, it did. And that's a path forward. Um, the other thing is SB 206 has given us leverage. And in conjunction with the Supreme Court ruling, and that was a little bit more happenstance. I mean, I, you know, the Supreme Court ruling in Jenkins wasn't directly about name, image, or likeness. But you saw the, the judicial precedent that was set by the Supreme Court on this matter absolutely affected NIL. The NCA was, they were prepared to come in this month and impose a whole bunch of heavy restrictions. But then they found out through Austin that they'd likely be sued into oblivion if they did that. And so now they're backing off with very minimal guidance and they're letting the schools make a decision. They're praying Congress is going to bail them out. Um, so we have a path forward. We were right. We've been right on everything. We've been right when we helped put together these uh, antitrust lawsuits. We were right that the NCAA was imposing illegal price fixing. We were right that the courts failed to to um, adequately address the issue. We were right that we, we thought lawmakers would be able to do the right thing. And if we had one state um, open it up, then the other states would follow. We've been right on all that. And so now I do see a light at the end of the tunnel. Is a path forward. I think ultimately, though, the ultimate um, remedy will be federal legislation. Um, I think we can get a lot right now um, with na name, image, likeness as the engine, pulling through other reforms like health and safety. And I think when we're successful on the compensation, that'll be the final um, issue that will domino and be in Congress's lap again, maybe in a few years. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and, and I think it'll get ironed out that way. I think it's I'm hopeful that within the next few years, um, things will be fair in college sports for college athletes. So anyway, let, let's finish here. But let me be clear on a couple of things. Um, I am unconvinced that this will be buttoned up in a few years, like Ramogi says there. And I'm not even sure if he believes it either, to be honest, but I respect the heck out of his smarts and his commitment to this. And I hope you got something out of the conversation like I did, because he is a guy, again, who lives this stuff in a way that the rest of us just don't. And he knows the ins and outs of something that's just sort of often distilled into sound bites, you know, or just like another dunk on the NCAA. So it's just really interesting to me, guys, you know, like we are living in a time of big change and it's cool to see how the wheels sort of you know get set in motion so okay guys that's the show this week um i appreciate you all for listening i hope we're worth your time and one more time please reach out to me if you can help support us with the sports pass please subscribe rate and review this podcast thanks to everybody who called in even those we couldn't get to big thanks to savannah smith for putting this together and as always the biggest thanks to you for giving us your time and letting us be a small part of your life I'm off next week, um, so let's talk after that. But in the meantime, have a great holiday weekend. Be kind.